0: There doesn't seem to be such a hard and fast difference between the night dreams and the waking dream, and that more and more your life reveals itself to be dreamlike, because the more you actually are tuned into this synchronistic matrix that's underlying and informing through this universe, the more it will manifest. And the more it manifests, the more you see it, and the more you see it, the more it'll manifest ad infinitum a feedback loop that helps to wake you up instead of keeping you asleep.
1: Welcome to The Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with The Art of Humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to Episode 65 of The Art of Humanity. Thank you so much for tuning into this season on Uncertainty. I've received so much amazing feedback on this season, and it's always such an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. This is the last episode in the season, and when many people are clinging to logic and what we know, I'm inviting you to take on an unfamiliar path. Sometimes these unfamiliar roads or roads where you're uncertain of where they go, they take you to the best places. After all, Embracing the uncertainty in our lives leads to the transformation of our souls. When we don't stress about the future and we trust 100% in our capabilities, we avoid worrying in the present moment because peace and higher consciousness are the name of the game in this new paradigm. We can discuss uncertainty from a micro level as in this moment right now, the summer of 2020. We can see that where we are in an uncertain place in regards to how everything will play out in the coming months, but then we can also think about it from a macro level. The new thought paradigms shift every generation, depending on who wins the academic power struggles. After all, we went from the Newtonian universe to Einstein's universe, and now who would have even thought that Einstein turned out to be wrong about quantum physics? This just shows how much we don't yet know about what we don't yet know. It requires us to stay humble and not waste each other's time thinking that we know everything because we don't. I can go on, but I'll stop here because my guest today has a lot to add to these thoughts. It was so nice to see this review from Tutu in Australia in Apple Podcasts. He writes, please follow Jessica Ann. Her insights are fascinating and her guests are life changing. Thank you, Tutu, for this positive review of my show. And just a reminder, I would love to see more five-star reviews from you, my dear listener. If you like this podcast, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pod would mean the world to me. It only takes a few seconds, so if you could go on over there right now and leave a review, I would love that. Here's episode 65 of season six, my interview with Paul Levy. To get all the links and show notes from this episode, go to artofhumanity.io slash episodes. Now, let's go to the show. Welcome to The Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness to let you and your business evolve. Today, I'm so thrilled to be joined by Paul Levy. A pioneer in the field of spiritual emergence, Paul is a wounded healer in private practice, helping others who are also awakening to the dreamlike nature of reality. His work has gone through three phases. Because of his intense interest in dreams, both night dreams and the dreamlike nature of reality, He was first known as the dream guy. After writing Dispelling Watiko, he became associated with the idea of Watiko. After the publication of The Quantum Revelation, he's now seen as connected with quantum physics. All three aspects, dreams, Watiko, and quantum physics, are interconnected and complementary facets of a deeper reality into which he is continually deepening his investigation. He's the author of The Madness of George Bush, A Reflection of Our Collective Psychosis, which came out in 2006. He's also the author of Dispelling Matiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil, Awakened by Darkness When Evil Becomes Your Father, and The Quantum Revelation, A Radical Synthesis of Science and Spirituality. A Tibetan Buddhist practitioner for over 30 years, he has intimately studied with some of the greatest spiritual masters of Tibet and Burma. He was the coordinator of the Portland chapter Padma Sambhava Buddhist Center for over 20 years. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity.
0: Yeah, I'm so happy to be here, really. Thank you.
1: Paul, I read your books, The Quantum Revelation and Dispelling Watiko, and your newest book, Dispelling Watiko for Good, which is not yet out, and I noticed that there's an overlap or an underlying thread that is woven throughout your work as we are conscious co-creators, as you allude to throughout your books. I noticed how both Richard Rudd, who I interviewed in Season 5, Episode 35, and Philip Shepard, who I interviewed on Episode 23, gave quite loving endorsements of your book. And I also noticed how you reference a lot of Philip K. Dick's work, who my guest Eric Davis on Episode 44 wrote about in his book High Weirdness. There is an evolutionary shift happening here, which I can't quite put my finger on. And maybe that's the point. (laughs) I'm pointing to the moon and we're seeing my finger. But let's try to peel back these layers. As season five was all about consciousness, and now season six is all about uncertainty, which is a large part of quantum physics, you've even dedicated a whole chapter to uncertainty in your book, The Quantum Revelation. So before we dive into the quantum nature of it all, I'd love to take a high-level look at your work, how you got into it, and why you're seemingly now dedicating your life to uncovering the mysteries of quantum physics.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you know, to create context for my work, in 1981, I had a, a profound spiritual awakening that almost killed me, and it was catalyzed by this intense suffering. And I'm not gonna go into the story about you know the suffering I actually wrote a book about it, but um, the point is is that it catalyzed the spiritual awakening in which I began to realize that we're having a collective dream that right now this universe that we're all collectively it's a shared dream that we're dreaming up moment by moment collaboratively and um, I was so excited at what I was realizing i mean it it just overtook me with it was like this revelation. And I was so, I was 24 years old. I'm now 63, so it was almost 40 years ago. And I was so excited and enthusiastic. And the word enthusiasm, just uh, etymologically, entheos, it means to be filled with spirit. All of a sudden, it was like something was coming through me. And like I was saying, I was realizing the dreamlike nature of reality. And I was just so effusive in my expression of what I was realizing that it got me in deep trouble. And I right away, I got hospitalized and I got diagnosed as being mentally ill. And it was crazy. And I knew it couldn't have been more obvious to me that I was having a spiritual awakening. And that's what saved me. Because during that next almost couple of years, I kept on getting thrown in hospitals, maybe four or five other times and always diagnosed as being bipolar. It was called something different then, but it just couldn't have been more obvious, like I was saying to me, that I was having a spiritual experience of the highest order. And some of the greatest enlightened masters in the world had become, were becoming part of it in actuality, not just in my imagination. So I was fortunate in that I was able to extricate myself from psychiatry pretty quickly and continued the spiritual awakening that I was having. And I just want to say I'm fortunate because a lot of people are not so fortunate. They might be having a shamanic initiatory experience, a spiritual awakening, and then they get diagnosed and medicated and their process gets aborted. And then it's tragic. They can spend the whole rest of their lives in this unbelievably fragmented state. And it's, it's very, very tragic and sad. But I was fortunate to be able to get out of that. And after a number of years, I realized, well, instead of that being a mistake, that was part of the awakening. That was, in a way, my shamanic descent into the underworld. And so I continued to integrate what I was realizing that we're having a collective dream. And um, it took me a long time, maybe 12, a dozen years, 13 years, something like that, of just going to therapy and connecting with my dreams and doing buddhist practice and making art and studying psychology all to integrate the trauma that I had just gone through in psychiatry and then the initial trauma and then in the early to mid 90s I realized wow now I I'm integrated enough I mean I'm still a work in progress that I had the realization well I've discovered something that many people have discovered over the course of history that could incredibly help people and could be really beneficial and was actually the medicine for what people needed and what our planet needs right now. So that's when I began teaching in the early to mid, maybe 94 or something like that. And I've been doing that since and just writing my books and the whole communities formed around my work. And basically, all of my work emerges out of the realization of the dreamlike nature and that we play an incredibly crucial role in that. And to the extent we're not aware of that, then our experience, then we feel like victims and where we get, you know, we get victimized by the world. But when you tap into our incredible, Unimaginably vast creative power, that's where we can become agents who can really change things, can change the world, but starting with changing ourselves.
1: Mm, Absolutely. Thank you for courageously sharing your story. I really think that when we tap into that shamanic journey, the shamanic descent into the underworld, and we come out with that medicine for what people and humanity need, you know, that's how we evolve. That's how we can use our experiences and bring them into the light. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is a Jungian quote, who you are a profound student and scholar of. He says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And I really find that this quote is applicable a lot to what you talk about in your book, Dispelling with Tico. And the book is really profound. It's a brave book as our society and culture in general does not like to talk about or face our shadows as Carl Jung refers to it. And I read this book a few months ago um, after one of my other guests, Bernard Gunther, who I interviewed in episode 24, quoted you. And I read Dispelling Watiko at the very beginning of this pandemic or plandemic, however you want to refer to it. (laughs) And it's powerfully disturbing and deeply thought-provoking. And I've used. Your book as a tool and a framework to help me stay sane throughout these challenging times. So I referenced a quote by Young, and you're a brilliant student and scholar of Young, which we can get into in a little bit. But let's start with Watiko. Can you first describe how you got into understanding Watiko and how you bring it into your work today?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, first let me let me try to describe Watiko. It's a Native American term on um, the Cree Indians. And it's really this cannibalistic spirit. You could think of it as the spirit of evil. And or you can think of it as a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul. And it works through the blind spots, through the unconscious blind spots of our psyche, in such a way that we entrance ourselves so that we actually become conditioned and hypnotized by our own projections. Because it works through the projective tendencies of the mind in such a way that we unwittingly become an instrument to act it out. While at the same time, we then become blind to that it's doing that. So we have no idea that we've become an instrument for acting out Watiko because it's a form of this psychic blindness. And, but it's a particular form of psychic blindness that doesn't know it's blind. And even more than that, it actually thinks it's sighted. And even more than that, it thinks it's more sighted than people who actually have sight. So in other words, oftentimes when people are afflicted with Watiko, they accuse other people of doing the very thing that they're unconsciously doing. Mm. And the thing about the blindness aspect of watiko there are really four aspects of it. One is we don't see that we're afflicted. So we don't see Watiko, we don't recognize we're blind. That's the first part. The second part is we don't see our shadow both personal and archetypal dimension of our shadow. We project it outside and try to destroy it. And that's the psychological dynamic that underlies Watiko. And and I'm happy to talk about that in a little bit. But third is, we also don't see our light. We don't see who we are. And that's the third form of blindness. But the fourth form of blindness is we don't recognize that Watiko is actually revealing something to us. It's this revelation that is teaching us exactly what we need to know, that if Watiko didn't exist in this world, we would have to invent it because it's the greatest catalyst for evolution that our species has ever has ever known. And it's like we're like other germs or like if you have like whatever, like the coronavirus, think about a virus. A virus, you know, typically it mutates as we adapt to it. Well Watico forces us to mutate. Mm. And so it's forcing us to evolve. And if we don't get its lesson, it will destroy us. So, how I first found out about Watiko it's very experiential. This isn't just me talking as a philosopher or abstract or a scholar at all. My father, I'm an only child, and without going into the story, my father was possessed by Watiko in the sense that he was literally a conduit for the Watiko spirit to act itself out through him, and I was the sensitive kid who was tracking this and that was the trauma that was the suffering that catalyzed me to start going inwards that then precipitated into a spiritual awakening but then once i got into psychiatry i realized oh my god the same darker energy that was coming through my father was now coming through psychiatry and it was like it had shifted channels it was like this multi-dimensional dream and all of a sudden Instead of coming through just the person of my father, now it was coming through this system of psychiatry. And that's when I began to realize, wow, this, whatever you call it, whether you call it the Watico virus or whatever, they're all different names and different spiritual traditions, that it's coming through, that it exists in the collective unconscious of our species. And it's coming through the non-local field, that it's a field phenomena. And that means that we all have it in potential Then it feeds off of fear and polarization and feeling separate. For example, if I saw my father when he was taken over by Watiko in a moment, and if I thought, oh, he has it and I don't, that perspective that feeds, that's thinking it's outside of myself, then I'm under the thrall of Watiko if I'm holding that perspective. So it just, it was a huge discovery. And I realized every spiritual tradition in the history of our planet has been pointing at Watiko in their own way. The Bible does. In the apocryphal texts, which actually were the texts that were so sacred, they were only given to initiates, but then they were they were written out of the Bible. Well in the apocryphal text they talk about a counterfeiting spirit. And they describe it as that it impersonates us. And then if we're not aware, we identify with it's this limited version of ourselves. And then then unwittingly, we've become an instrument for that counterfeiting spirit that's aping us. We then identify with its limited version of who we are. And in doing that, we've given away our true selves. We've identified with who we're not. This is in the apocryphal text. And this is word for word, a description of Watiko. And every spiritual tradition is describing exactly this. Because it operates through the blind spots of the unconscious, if we don't wake up to this... We're gonna continue to destroy ourselves. And but encoded in Watiko is this blessing. And and just one final thing, because I can go on, you know, forever, it's my life's work. But the thing about Watiko, it's a disease, it's a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul. So it exists in the unconscious of each and every one of us. And yet it has a magical ability of explicating itself through the medium of the outside world, which is to say it's as if it magically extends itself out into the world so as to configure external events such that it synchronistically reflects the state of a psyche under its thrall. What I'm describing, that's a dream that the inner is reflecting the outer. So that's one of the ways where you begin to see Watika, where you begin to recognize the dreamlike nature, and you begin to recognize that the outer world is reflecting the state of the inner psyche.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's really a powerful awareness to contemplate. And you referenced the Bible. And interestingly enough, I was researching this a little bit more. And in Ephesians, 612 it says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms
0: Right. And that's exactly what Tico, those rulers, those are the archons of the Gnostics and the archons. That is what Tico. That's an example of what I'm saying. It's not just our personal pathology. This is an archetypal process. This is this daimonic energy. And a daimonic energy is a transpersonal energy that can literally possess the human ego. And then we become the instruments. That's exactly that young quote you mentioned about anything we're unconscious of where we act out as fate when we don't have awareness. Of this energy, mm. of this demonic energy, then it literally we identify with it, we become taken over and possessed by it, and we act it out unconsciously in our life as fate. That's what that quote means
1: totally. And there's a humbleness that arises out of the awareness of whatiko. And there is this sense of greater sense of self and autonomy that we can often gain when we recognize how much. Of this Watiko virus, whatever you want to refer to it as, is controlling our lives. Um, and one way of understanding Watiko is through the imagination and imagining a certain perspective in a dream. And then that viewpoint reflects back to us because the dream is nothing but our own minds. And, you know, and then once you get more fixed in this viewpoint, the more your dream manifests and gives us evidence in a feedback loop whose source is our own minds.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We have, there's this genius power of co-creating reality that we can manifest once we are aware yeah, of it. Yeah,
0: totally. Because that's what Watico... Watico has no creativity at all, but it it actually plugs into our creativity and uses it against us. That's its spirit. That's what it does. And like what you just described, I mean, that is so profound because you see to the extent that we're not aware of our genius, Watico then, you know, it turns it against us. And an example is in a dream when you're in a dream and to just imagine like you were invoking the creative imagination just imagine you're in a dream right well what is a dream but a dream is a projection of the mind it's a reflection of the mind so whatever viewpoint you're holding in the dream instantaneously in no time whatsoever you know gets reflected back because the dream is nothing than your own mind reflected back to you and if you change your viewpoint in a dream instantaneously in no time whatsoever the dream will shape-shift and reflect back your change in viewpoint and so here's how it works so you have a viewpoint in the dream all of a sudden or not all of a sudden you know in no time the dream reflects back giving you all the evidence like you were just saying confirming your viewpoint well now you have proof that your viewpoint is objective And so then you become even more fixed in your viewpoint that what you're seeing is reality and it's objective and it's out there. And the more you hold that viewpoint, the more the dream, which is just a reflection of your viewpoint, will give you all the evidence confirming your viewpoint ad infinitum in an infinitely self-generating feedback loop whose origin is your own mind. What I just described is your own genius for creating reality, boomeranging and turning against yourself so as to hypnotize yourself. That's what he You see what I'm saying? But when you see through that process, all of a sudden, that creative genius gets liberated and you can consciously express it in a way that instead of killing you, is actually serving you.
1: Absolutely. And I laughed when I discovered that you wrote this book, The Madness of George Bush. And it was published way back in 2006, almost 15 years ago. And the reason I laugh is because it was around this time that I became conscious of how the blind spots of my psyche were playing itself out, in that I should preface this in that I'm one of those weirdos who loves talking about dreams, <laughs> although our modern society is sees it as taboo. But anyway, I had a recurring dream around that time that you published your book that George Bush knocked on my front door. And before I opened the door, I had a visceral abhorrence to this man. And then when I opened the door, he smiled at me. And it was hard to not immediately be charmed by his charisma. And I immediately loved the man. (laughs) So now this was just a dream. And I didn't know of you or your work or this book at the time. But this dream helped me to become more lucid, allowed me to awaken (laughs) to my own dreams of how I was co-creating my reality based on my emotions and my experiences, So it was evidence of the quantum world, and it allowed me to see through the illusions of the objective world. And although this book centers on George Bush, it's ultimately about ourselves and how you analyze the current state of our world as if it is a mass shared dream that humanity is collaboratively dreaming up into materialization. So Paul, this is just one of my personal examples through my subjective experience. Are there other examples that you can share in how Watiko manifests?
0: Oh! Oh! Totally! Oh! Absolutely! So, I'll just give you an example because I made reference to that—the psychological sort of the underlying process that underlies that informs what you go, you know, its origin as the psyche is when we split off from our own shadow, and you know, to the extent that that we're not fully awake, all of us have, you know, have disassociated from our own shadow, and we split it off. And think about, you know, in our family or intimate relationships where, you know, if I'm not in touch with my own shadow and a shadow has both a personal element and an archetypal element, then what's going to happen, you know, I'm going to split it off and I'm going to project it outside of myself and I'm going to see it in the other, whether it's in whoever, you know, my partner, my kids, my parents, the neighbors, you know, the other political party or, you know, the other country or whatever. And then just go back to the dreamlike nature When we split off our shadow, if you're in a dream, when you have a part of you that you're not in relationship to and you just, it gets projected out, then into the dream will walk a carrier, somebody who will embody your split off shadow. And, you know, if you recognize, oh, yeah, that's just a part of myself, then you can see you're looking in a mirror and you can own your shadow and, you know, then you've integrated a part of yourself but so many of us don't do that and what i'm describing is playing out in the body politic i mean if you think about like the republican party is demonizing the democratic party and the democratic party is demonizing the republican party and we're demonizing nothing new (laughs) yeah 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 and we're demonizing fill in the blank was it iran or syria or north korea or whoever you know so that sense of just finding a scapegoat to carry our shadow is playing out both individually and collectively all over the body politic of the world. And then what happens if you just follow this process whose origin, it's important to not forget, is in the human psyche. It's nowhere else but inside of the unconscious. When you follow that, then say you project out the shadow and then whether it's your neighbor or a husband or whoever, your kid or parent or wife, They're like, they then embody it, like I was describing. Then what do you do? You actually try, you know, if it's a group of people or a country, you try to kill them, which is just an outer sort of externalization of the very inner process of trying to get rid of and destroy and kill your inner shadow. It's now getting played out on the external world. But then by trying to destroy that carrier of, what you see as evil, well, guess what? In doing that, you've become possessed by the very evil you're trying to destroy. And of course, the more you see them as evil, whoever the them, whoever the other is, the more then they will manifest that way. And then the more they manifest that way, the more proof you have that the evil is really out there and you're all righteous and good. And then just take a look. That's incredible polarization. Think about the polarization that's happening in our world today. And polarization and fear, that's the food for Watiko. So, unless we actually see this process and each one of us take responsibility for it, we're then just, you know, we unwittingly, we're offering a feast for Watiko to gorge itself and to act itself out through us. And when this process is getting acted out, not just individually, but collectively, then what happens is our species is destroying ourselves. And that's what we're doing. We're literally enacting collective suicide. We're destroying the biosphere, the life support system of our planet. And it's all because, yeah, we haven't understood this core inner process that's happening inside of each of our psyches.
1: Wow. This is really, really profound, deep stuff. So just to take a step back a little bit, we're talking about, for our listeners here, we're talking about this concept and really how it applies to our lives, this concept of Watiko. And the thing about Watiko that is amazing is that it does have this paradoxical nature to it, that it is one of the most evil energies on our planet But if we can find the blessing and the gift within it, we can discover the dreamlike nature of reality. It can help us remember who we are and wake up, which we couldn't necessarily do without it. So is Watiko the deepest, darkest evil, or is it the highest good? Is it the yin and the yang?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I love I love that question because Watiko, it's a quantum phenomenon. That's why I wrote my recent book on quantum physics. And quantum physics, the revelations emerging from quantum physics are, are providing us with the medicine for Watiko. I can explain that. So by being a quantum phenomena, what I mean is that, well, is when you look at, well here, here's the nature of light. Is it, a wave or a particle. And in quantum physics, they discovered well, it depends how we set up the experiments, how we interpret the data, the questions we ask. Sometimes it will manifest as a wave, sometimes as a particle. And those are two completely contradictory, exclusive um, entities a wave or you can't imagine more opposites. And the point is, is that the nature of light sometimes light manifests as a wave or a particle depending on how it's observed. Okay. And that's exactly like Watiko. It's um, the source of the greatest evil that our species is enacting on each other, on ourselves, and on the world collectively. And encoded, hidden, encoded in the pathogen, in the Watiko mind virus, is the most profound medicine that's helping us actually wake up to our nature and to who we are and our place in the universe. And I'll give you an example. So here comes quantum physics. And the world before quantum physics, this is early 20th century, that was when quantum physics really first came onto the scene. Physicists before quantum physics thought, oh, this universe existed objectively, and we're just passive observers, and we're trying to understand it, understand how it works. And then along comes quantum physics that basically pulled the rug out from under that whole point of view and said, the universe that classical physicists were studying, an objective world, didn't even exist. At all. There's no such thing if they imagine it existed objectively separate from the observer. In other words, the act of it's like a total psychedelic in the sense that the act of observing this universe actually influenced the universe observed. That's the rabbit hole. When you go down that rabbit hole, it's so mind-blowing what you discover. Because just to think about that, the act of observing actually influences the universe observed what that means is that the act of observation is creative every moment we are interpreting our experience we are creating our experience of ourselves and of the world through how we place meaning on our experience by the act of perceiving this universe we're actually collaborating with the universe and invoking it the way it is so the act of observation is creative what that means in essence, quantum physics is revealing; is empirically proven. It's completely 100% proven that this experience that all of us are having is a collective dream. That's where it all of a sudden mapped on to my spiritual awakening experience. That's what I began to realize close to 40 years ago. And along comes quantum physics, and it's like proven that. And it's proven. Oh yeah, the act of observation is creative. And so all of a sudden, it's pointing at that each one of us has this unimaginably vast creative power at our disposal. But to the extent that we're unconscious of it, it's being turned against us, like I've been describing, in a way that's destroying us. So what I'm saying is, hey, look, this is the solution to the world crisis. It's been discovered. I didn't discover it. I'm just translating it. A lot of people have discovered it, but it can help me in my life to whatever degree. But once enough of us actually get turned onto this, and hook up with each other and get in sync with each other and get in phase with each other, we discover that we can dream ourselves awake. And this is evolutionary. This is the solution to the world crisis that we're faced. And if we don't recognize this, okay, well, then we're fated to just destroy ourselves. And then over however many tens of billions of years, we'll dream up a similar situation. And will we get the lesson again? Ad infinitum, we'll destroy ourselves again until We finally wake up and remember who we are. And it's completely offered to us. The revelations of quantum physics are staring us in the face. And it's actually a spiritual path. And here's how. When you realize there's no objective world out there separate from us, right? Well, what happened to the subject? We need an object to be a subject. We, as a subject, we have to have an object to be in relationship in order to be a subject. But if all of a sudden there's no objective world, what happened to us as the subject? The point is the revelations from quantum physics are shedding light on who we are and our place in the universe, and we are these unbelievably powerful creative beings made in the image of the creator itself. And that's what I'm trying to bring forth in essence.
1: Every time I hit publish on a new episode of my podcast, I'm filled with such immense gratitude for the ability to co-create at this time in history. Those on this shared path of co-creation are ushering in a new consciousness on this planet. It's a new state of being with a capital B versus the old paradigm of doing. Many of us humans need a manual on how to simply exist. Podcasting is one way to broadcast our light. It's a way to activate our human potential and bring in business. My team and I have created results for our clients like a six-figure deal with Spotify within one year of launch, getting ranked as an Apple new and notable, deals with iHeartRadio and Himalaya. Stitcher has even promoted our podcasts to climb the charts. We're creating success for podcast hosts from all over the world while working smarter, not harder. If you're looking to take the mystery out of podcasting and want to start or scale your podcast into a globally recognized media empire, go to go.artofhumanity.io slash masterclass to learn more about my profitable podcast masterclass. Again, that's go.artofhumanity.io slash masterclass. Now back to the interview. Really, when we think about it, it really comes down to the fact that everything is a reflection of ourselves, which creates our subjective reality. And this is what got me nerding out over quantum physics. And it's such a fun rabbit hole to get into. And I can totally see how Wittico led you to quantum physics because quantum physics is truly the medicine for Wittico. And when we start applying our subjective reality to our consciousness and to understanding how our consciousness works, we can understand that there is no one universal truth. There is a universal phenomenon at work, but there is, we're getting away from this Newtonian era of thinking and science and we're entering this other realm that has never really been explored before and we're at the very beginning of the new revelations that you are uncovering in your work. And once we understand that there is this power and control that are being reinforced and maintained at the expense of this universal truth, we can Operate through agency, and we have more free will, or at least we think we have more free will. Who really knows? (laughs) But it's really, really powerful. I like to believe that there is more free will once we can access this.
0: No, there is. There definitely is, but that's different. If we're identified with a fictitious identity of Watiko, we can think that we have free will all we want, but that's part of the illusion. But when you actually connect with your true nature, and then you realize, yeah, you're just an instrument for something of the sacred to be coming through, that in a sense really activates like real free will. Now, the thing I want to point out, the thing about Watiko, like I was saying, it feeds off of fear and feeling separate and polarization. So there are three ways, because the thing about Watiko, it only has power over us to the extent we don't see it. If you remember, I said it works through the blind spots of the unconscious. As long as we are blind to it and don't see it, then, in a way, it has power over us. Now, keep in mind that whatico doesn't even exist. It has no independent, intrinsic existence whatsoever, separate from our own mind. It doesn't exist at all, and yet it can destroy us. It can destroy our species. That paradox, that's pointing at what i am been trying to shed light on, the incredible power that each of us have that we don't know. And it's what Christ was saying in the Bible when he says, ye are gods and scripture cannot be broken. I mean, it was destined at a certain point for us to wake up to this. And oftentimes in dreaming, the unconscious, it pushes you right into the corner, right to your edge, and you don't know what to do in order to bring out the best in you, in order to wake you up. And I'm pointing out that is a way of understanding what's happening in our world right now. But getting back to what TICO operating through our blind spots and that it can't be, you know, as long as we don't see it, it has power over us. What that means is that when you actually see how what works through the non-local field, through the external world, through our unconscious reactions inside of our minds, then all of a sudden, once you see it, it has no power over you. And so there are three ways of really sort of taking away its power. And they're all like aspects of the same. It's like a facets of this diamond. One of the ways is, like I was saying, and, and they're all really the same, just different articulations, different aspects. One of the ways is to see the dreamlike nature, mm-hmm. like I've been describing. Two is to see the non-local field, like I was describing, you know, like, oh yeah, the same evil that came through my father. Now it's coming through psychiatry. Well, there's something that sources the non-local field, and it's not separate from my own mind. And and the third is when you see through the separate self, see through the illusion of the separate self that we don't exist as skin encapsulated egos, as separate selves that are separate from anything or anyone. And when you really go into your experience, just from the phenomenological point of view, we only exist in sort of relationship to someone else or to the rest of the universe, but that someone else doesn't exist as entity, as a separate entity in and of themselves. They only exist in relationship to other beings and the rest of the universe, who themselves don't exist as this reference point that's set off from anything else, but they only exist relative to other beings and the rest of the universe. We're all interdependent, interconnected. That's to see through the illusion of the separate self, and that's to begin to wake up to who we are, okay? And that's what this is all about. And if I can just share a way to understand this, really, in a, you know, through the imagination. So just imagine you're in a dream, right? And imagine you're in a dream and you don't know you're dreaming. Just like now, it seems real. I knock on the table and it feels like it's solid wood. Now, then imagine, creatively imagine that you recognize that you're dreaming. Oh, wow, you have lucidity and imagine that some of your other dream characters who are just aspects of yourselves, they also have lucidity. And imagine you come together and hang out and contemplate what you're realizing. Oh my God, this universe we're inhabiting, this is a collective dream that we're all dreaming up together. Oh my God. I imagine that there is a way of getting in phase with each other, like I've been suggesting, where you can literally change the dream you're having. I'm describing a night dream, but that's our situation in the waking dream right now. And that's evolutionary, that we're actually invited to participate in our own evolution. And that is what this is all about.
1: Collectively, we all need to be like Neo when we embrace the deep sense of thrill that comes as we progressively face our demons. And it's not an easy process. We'll want to look away. But if you stay with that deep work, that integration, that realizing that we are co-creating this reality, we can start to experience synchronicities that will really blow your mind. And just like in The Matrix, we don't need Morpheus to tell us that we are the one. We're frequency. We're wave particles. And when we broadcast our light, we can be an anchor in the mystery and embracing our history and all that is. So it's really this nonlinear way of working through our demons and our existence in this world as we wake up to being with a capital B in the matrix. Yeah, No,
0: that's exactly it. And you begin, because when I began to awaken in 1981, you know, like every moment was synchronistic. The idea that I was recognizing the correlation between the inner and the outer, you know, and think about it in the apocryphal text, Christ says, you enter the kingdom when you make the inner as the outer. So the idea being, it's just like a dream. Our inner situation inside of our psyche is getting expressed synchronistically through the outside world. And that's happening all the time, but then it's a question of, do you have the recognition? And that's what I'm pointing at, and that's to see the dreamlike nature. Now, one other thing, or a few other things, people ask me, okay, well, what can I do And one of the things when I work with people one-on-one, I always get to the point where I try to help them to access their creative spirit. Because encoded in Watiko, Watiko is this daimonic energy, which means it's a transpersonal archetypal energy. It's not just a personal energy. Now, the word daimon, etymologically, it means the guiding spirit, the inner voice. It's related to genius and to finding one's vocation, and finding one's calling, hearing a voice, all of that's related to the daimon. So the point is that the thing about a daimon, because it's a higher dimensional energy, it can literally take over the ego, and then we become possessed by it. And if we're not in conscious relationship to it, it constellates in a negative way and becomes a demon. It becomes evil, right?
1: And there's only one letter. If you just remove the A, it becomes a demon. Mm -hmm.
0: Right, exactly, exactly. And so the point is, now the encoded in the daimon, in that daimonic energy, according to Jung, is the not yet made real creative. So it's the creative spirit in potential. So the point is, is that if we get in touch with our daimon, with our guiding spirit, our inner voice, and have the courage to follow our calling and find our vocation and connect with our genius and step into who we are, then we're going to be a conduit for the creative spirit which is from a higher dimension than the ego, to come through us. And that's the medicine for Watiko. Watiko is actually the fuel that feeds that creative genius. But if we don't have the courage to connect with our calling, with our creativity, that same energy, then like I said, it consolates negatively and becomes a demon. And that's, in essence, you know, each one of us has a responsibility to navigate that process in our own lives. And that's why being creative is so profoundly important.
1: Yeah, the courage to connect with our creativity is huge, especially during these times. I think any time really in history, creativity has been important. And I love this quote by Marshall McLuhan. He was a media theorist. He coined the expression, the medium is the message. And I want to fuse some analogies and theories here. So please bear with me as I hash this out. It's a little bit or a lot creative, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> One of the reasons why I love podcasting and this medium so much is because it takes place on a quantum level. When we realize that we can exist in this space-time continuum and co-create the world that we want to live in, there is an interconnection with everything. Not only am I interviewing you, Paul Levy, right now. But there's a unique power to these conversations that help humanity evolve. And timing is art. When we podcast, we're shining a light on the subjective experience where a listener can find this interview either the day it was published or 10 years later. And podcasting helps to enter this lucid dream of life so that we can imagine the dreamlike nature of reality and contemplate the realization that we're co-dreaming into materialism moment to moment. And as you said, as more folks are having this realization, we can realize the sacred power of dreaming and use this power to prompt an evolutionary impulse and be even more creative. Can you speak to this phenomenon of how we can integrate higher consciousness into the medium of our message?
0: Yeah, for sure. So what you said was so far out, and I'm a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. And so the the tradition I do practice to, the way that it keeps itself fresh over the centuries is it's with these things called hidden treasures. The Tibetan word is uh, terma, and which translates as hidden treasures. And the idea being is that encoded in the fabric of the universe in all of its multiple dimensions are these treasures, are these hidden teachings and blessed objects that are designed to be discovered right at the moment when they're needed to wake us up. So it's similar to a dream. When an individual person gets one-sided or falls asleep to a part of themselves or gets off balance, then the what happens? The unconscious compensates and sends them a symbol. And when they get in phase with that symbol, it brings them back to themselves. Well, the idea of these hidden treasures, the terma, it's the same idea that you know and keep in mind this isn't fairy tale this is studied by the you know scholars this is a real thing this is how the tradition really just kind of propagates itself over time and what i'm saying is that for example quantum physics coming into the world 100 or you know 100 years ago or so that i just gave a big lecture about this at a conference that we can conceive of quantum physics as a modern day analog to a hidden treasure that we have literally dreamed in quantum physics into our world and into our minds so as to help us to remember who we are and to help us to wake up. And not just quantum physics, there are a lot of these hidden treasures. I mean, just think about it. Think about you're in a night dream tonight. You're going about your night dream And then something happens, an anomalous something, or all of a sudden you'll open up a book and you'll see a certain phrase and it'll help you to remember that you're dreaming and you'll have lucidity and you'll wake up in the dream. Well, I call that the stimulator, lucidity stimulator. Now that's really interesting. So implanted in your dream was this lucidity stimulator like a clue, like a reminder to help you to remember that you were dreaming. In other words, to help you to just realize the nature of your situation. Well, what I'm saying is that in this universe, hidden throughout the multidimensional fabric of this universe, are these lucidity stimulators, are these thermo-like analogs, quantum physics being one, but we can plant them. We can actually participate in their invocation. An example, say if tomorrow I have to bring something when I leave the house to, I have to remember to bring an object, right? but I'm afraid, oh, I might forget to bring it. Well, okay, in front of the front door, I'll put like a box of tissues. And then tomorrow morning, I've totally forgotten about the object I need to bring and I'm walking out, oh, and the box of tissues is blocking the front door. Oh, it reminds me, oh, I need to bring that object. Well, just think about that. Myself in this moment is planting something in the fabric of the universe that tomorrow is gonna help me to remember something. So we all have the capability of doing that of like dreaming up our dream of the waking dream in a way that helps us to remember who we are. It's not just a passive process. We're participating in creating our own awakening. And particularly when you connect with other people who are also getting switched on to that, wow, this isn't a competitive sport who's more awake, you or me, but if I help you awaken, it helps me. We can all collaborate. And it's, it's a true conspiracy theory. It's what I call we can conspire to co-inspire each other. And it's a win-win. It's what I meant before when I said we can dream ourselves awake. And this is like mind-blowing. This is what's being offered to us freely. So the idea being, and then if you see something as a lucidity stimulator, well, then it has no choice to manifest that way because there's nothing out there other than a reflection of your own mind. And so then it just gets so unbelievably expansively creative. And what I'm basically pointing at is that we already have the medicine in us not only have the Philosopher's Stone and the Holy Grail, we are it. That's who we are. Mm -hmm. And it's just a question of, have we forgotten? And all that I'm trying to do, I mean, in my quantum physics book, I talk about, yeah, we have amnesia. We're geniuses with amnesia. And to the extent we can help each other to remember and to stabilize that, because it's not hard to have lucidity in a dream, but then it's easy to fall back asleep and get absorbed back into the forms of the dream what I'm pointing at is, wait a second, there's a way of having that lucidity and then helping each other to stabilize it and to deepen it. And then when you put, when you hang out with other people who are having that realization, like you were saying, then our sacred power of dreaming, then we could literally change the dream. And that's what this is all about. I don't know how else to say it.
1: (laughs) You articulated that beautifully. Thank you. And I find it really powerful when you do leave the tissue boxes by the door from yesterday and then you're seeing it the next day. Those are just some ways that we can wake up to the fact that our former selves are talking to our future self. And that's just one example.
0: Totally. And our future selves are talking to our present selves, too. Mm -hmm. It works both ways, back and forth in time.
1: Absolutely. And I love that concept. And it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite movies, Waking Life by Richard Linklater. I talk about this with Pete Holmes in one of my episodes. And in this movie, Waking Life, when they're dreaming, they go to switch on or off a light switch. And they realize that you can actually become lucid in your dreams if you can't turn the light switch on and off. Are there any concrete, practical ways that we can test this out in our real waking lives today? Similar to the example you gave with a tissue box.
0: Yeah, well, one of, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a whole dream yoga. There are all these practices you do. But the one that I love the most, okay, so the first lucid dream that I ever had, which was in, I think, in the early 80s, early to mid 80s, and I remember, yeah, it was like in the early 80s, because I was first starting to do Tibetan Buddhist practice. And so I had this full blown lucid dream. And spontaneously, as soon as I recognized that I was dreaming, without me even consciously thinking about anything, I just began chanting this mantra. And I hadn't even, I never had even done this mantra. I was such a beginning practitioner. And it's Om Mani Pemi Hong, the mantra of compassion. And it was just flooding through me. I wasn't even doing it, it was doing me. It just began spontaneously reciting itself while i was having this lucid dream and then that kept on happening again and again as i would have all these lucid dreams and then i i learned that in tibetan buddhism that awakening is the com- it's always considered to be the combination of two factors of emptiness and compassion and emptiness that's lucidity that's to recognize that oh that there's nothing that has intrinsic independent objective existence you know, separate from consciousness. That's emptiness as a very simple definition. But then compassion, well, Om Mani Pemi Hong was the mantra of compassion. So the thing which is interesting is that in that lucid dream, right as I was having the realization of emptiness, spontaneously from the core of my being came out the mantra of compassion. And so to answer your question, for me, the greatest practice of really connecting to wake up and to have lucidity is to the extent that any of us could cultivate genuine compassion in our lives. And in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a major practice where you go about your daily waking life and you imagine that you're dreaming and you imagine that you've woken up. And that's not to say you imagine, oh, this person's turning into a reptile or they're flying up in the air or you jump off a a roof. No, that's off balance. Not like that. But you just, by imagining that you're dreaming, you imagine that you're lucid. And you imagine, oh, when you have some familiarity with lucidity, that means that everything I'm seeing is a reflection of my mind, that I'm looking in a mirror. Now, interestingly, in the Apocryphal text, once again, the Apocryphal text, Christ literally says, I am a mirror to those that know me. Now, think about it. When you have a mirror, a mirror is invisible by itself. And then you have an object that gets reflected through the mirror, and the the reflection seems to obscure the silver surface of the mirror, but simultaneously it's revealing the mirror. You would never notice the mirror without the reflections, okay? And so here Christ is saying, I am a mirror to those that know me. So we see, we're going about the waking dream, and when you have lucidity and you do this practice of imagining you're lucid as you go about your day, you actually are having the experience, you're remembering that everything you are seeing in this seemingly outer world is a reflection of your own mirror-like nature of your mind. That's a practice. And the more you actually get in the habit of going about your day and imagining that you're lucid and of course infused with genuine compassion, that's gonna translate into your night dreams. And then more and more you discover that wow, doesn't seem to be such a hard and fast difference between the night dreams and the waking dream. And that more and more your life reveals itself to be dreamlike because the more you actually are tuned into the synchronistic matrix that's underlying and informing through this universe, the more it will manifest. And the more it manifests, the more you see it. And the more you see it, the more it'll manifest ad infinitum a feedback loop that helps to wake you up instead of keeping you asleep.
1: Yes, and that's one of the beautiful aspects of quantum physics and your work in the world. And one of my favorite topics is synchronicity. And when we begin to awaken, we experience more synchronicities. Jung refers to synchronicities as a contact point for physics and psychology. And you have a whole chapter in your book, The Quantum Revelation, on synchronicity. And what I find really, really trippy is that we're only beginning to understand synchronicity and quantum physics. And all the stuff that we're talking about right now, we're really at the forefront of it. What do your research and findings reveal about synchronicity that would be really helpful for listeners to know at this time in history?
0: Yeah, you're right. We're at the very, you see, we're at the incredibly beginning stages when something so radical as quantum physics, which is showing the interface and the inseparability of matter and mind. It's such an overwhelming, radical, this revolutionary and evolutionary discovery. It typically takes centuries to unpack. It's only been one century. We're at the absolute kindergarten stage of understanding what it's showing to us. Because what it's showing, it, like I said before, it's literally showing to us we're having a collective dream. So the idea of synchronicity, I mean, so in a way, it's very simple. Like what synchronicities are where there's a correlation between the inner state. Of our psyche and the outer world and you recognize there's like a fissure in the underlying you know reality all of a sudden reveals itself and you recognize the correlation the interconnection between the inner and the outer the outer state is actually reflecting the inner condition and of course that's an absolutely 100 percent description of a dream and a beautiful i wrote an article about this what the, really the sort of perfect description or example of a synchronicity, Young talks about that he had a patient who was really stuck and he didn't know what to do. And she was just coming in and was just cycling and in her head. And then all of a sudden she came in one session and she had this dream of a golden scarab. And as she's telling Young the dream, there's a tapping on the window on his office. And he opens up the window and into his hand flies a golden scarab, just like the woman's dream, a beetle that wasn't even found in that part of Europe. And about to cry, it's touching me so deeply. And he holds up his hand with the beetle, the golden scarab, and he says to her, here, here's your golden scarab. And he says in his commentary, he goes, oh, from that point on, the therapy went swimmingly. In other words, it cracked her open. (laughs) They both recognized that her inner process all of a sudden showed up and manifested through the outer world. It's even trippier than that because that synchronistic phenomena, just think about it, Jung himself was part of the synchronicity. He was actually participating in it. It wasn't just something they were watching out there or that she was telling him that happened, but it was actually getting enacted through the act of her telling the dream and Jung played a crucial role. So that's an idea. And synchronicities happen typically when we access the archetypal dimension of the psyche when we're not just in our personal shadow or personal stuff, but we really go deep inside of us and touch that place in us that's reflecting the archetypal, universal. And when we get to that place, which isn't just the personal unconscious, but is the collective unconscious, typically that gets reflected via synchronistic phenomena and the outer world. And that can change people's lives when you have that recognition. Because it can snap us out of the spell. Because, in a sense, it is as if we are under a collective spell, thinking we are limited, thinking we're helpless, identifying with this smaller version of who we are, not being in touch with our creative power and our genius. And it's like, and then in the consensus reality, we're all reinforcing this limited version of ourselves. And it's a collective spell, it's a collective hypnosis, it's a collective brainwashing. It's like we're in a fairy tale and we've fallen under an enchantment. And all that I'm trying to do is, hey, look, if you look at it this way, it actually absolutely activates. It's psychoactive. It's like it just unleashes your creative power in a way that we have barely been able to imagine. And that's as true as anything. So all my whole work, my whole life is just trying to really switch people onto this and turn people onto this. It's readily available. It doesn't cost any money. It's like such an, a win-win. It's getting really urgent because things in our world are getting more and more ominous and look really dark. But I point out from the dreaming point of view, when there's such an intense dark shadow, that's an expression that the light is nearby. If we get caught in pessimism, then we're actually part of the problem because then by the power of dreaming, we're going to attract all the evidence we need to confirm our pessimistic viewpoint in a negative feedback loop in which we're killing ourselves. So it's important to not get fixed in a pessimistic point of view.
1: Absolutely. And a key component of quantum physics is embodiment and really being grounded in the reality that we are manifesting. And I like the duality and the paradox between using ideas to catapult our future reality. But at the same time, if we're not grounded in our embodiment of our experience of reality, the whole experience can be really loopy and trippy. So as you mentioned, very early in your life, back in 1981, you started to wake up and it is almost like this schizophrenic energy to it when we do awaken. So it's really important to know that you're not, we're not crazy listeners out there that, you know, if you are waking up to this, I'm not a doctor, but obviously there is a benefit to medicine, but sometimes medicine is not always the way to go. And your path mirrors mine in that very way. And that, I did get off medication, and I realized that we create a reality. And I was not some crazy person that needed meds. And it really is the medicine. Quantum physics is the medicine for depression. It is the medicine for Wittico.
0: Yeah, well, even some of the greatest quantum physicists said that when they would get depressed, they would listen to Mozart and study quantum physics, that those were the two things they would do. And from the consensus reality, I mean, my family... Part of the tragedy of my spiritual awakening, my parents died close to 20 years ago, and the rest of my relatives disowned me because they had bought into my father's point of view that I was the bad and crazy one and all that. And so in a way, Watiko got into the petri dish of my family and destroyed my family. But the point is, is that when you're a card-carrying member of the consensus reality, people who are waking up seem to be the crazy ones but it's really important. Like for me, if I would have subscribed to a psychiatrist's point of view, and if I would have agreed with them and said, yes, I have this chemical imbalance because the DSM-3 had just come out the year before, the diagnostic manual in 1980, announcing the new discovery of the chemical imbalance. And so every doctor was diagnosing me as having this chemical imbalance, and I just knew they were unbelievably stupid. But and keep in mind, the same doctors who wrote the DSM-3 that announced the chemical imbalance a number of years later, I mean, I I have the quotes in in one of my books, then came out and said, oh, by the way, there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. It was a meme made up by the pharmaceutical companies to make more drugs and make more money, but it so has gotten traction that people still use the word chemical imbalance like it's a real thing. And the very authors of the book said, oh, no, it's completely made up. There's no such thing. But every psychiatrist was diagnosing me as having this chemical imbalance they were guaranteeing that I had this mental illness for the rest of my life, that I needed to be on pharmaceuticals, or I would immediately have a psychotic break. And according to them, if I would have signed on and agreed to that, and then taken pharmaceuticals and just been unbelievably like depressed and uninspired, from their point of view, that would have been a successful treatment.
1: You would have been a zombie though.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would have. Right. I would have been a zombie. Right. And I, you know, so what's wrong with that picture? So here I am now, I just took myself off the drugs because I figured out very quickly how to navigate consensus reality and still be in touch with my spiritual awakening and not like express it in a way that was freaking people out. And here I am now, creating a whole body of work, and people all over the world study my stuff and get benefit. Thank God. I mean, if psychiatry had their way, I would be a complete zombie, you know, on antipsychotics, just dribbling saliva and, (laughs) you know, screaming about socialism or something. I mean, God only knows thank God.
1: Grateful for that as well, because your work in this world is really revelatory. So thank you, Paul. You are truly one of the leading spiritual philosophers and mystics of our time. What is next for you? I know you have a new book coming out soon. Do you want to share more?
0: Yeah. I mean, okay. The one thing I want to say is that, so since the global pandemic, and I point out that the coronavirus is, I'll just say it really succinctly, it's an emanation of the higher dimensional Watiko mind virus. And I've written extensively about that because the coronavirus isn't just physical, it has multiple vectors, mental and behavioral. And when you see how it's affecting all dimensions of this world and you begin to trace that back, it helps you to see the Watiko virus, which as long as you don't see it, it has power over you. So since the pandemic has happened, or like you said, the plandemic, I mean, who knows, but the point is, that there's this incredible energy that's available in the field. And a lot of people just get like overwhelmed or get into their addictions or indulge in whatever habitual patterns. But I want to also say that when there is incredible energy like there is with what we're going through the last number of months, there is incredible energy available for plugging into being creative. So I've just been writing like a madman, like nonstop as a way of keeping myself sane in a world gone mad. And so I've just been endlessly just expressing my creativity and I urge all of us to do the same. Yeah. So that's really what's going on for me.
1: And I'm going to link to a few of your articles, which are extremely profound. COVID is a symbol of a much deeper infection, the Wetico mind virus. I will link to some of your articles in the show notes on artofhumanity.io. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Paul. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just so appreciate your invitation and your questions and everything. So really, I can't thank you enough.
1: You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann and my handle is Human. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.